is duct tape and oh no 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 oh no stop it stop it sorry what happened over there our, i accidentally <laughs> opened one of our old episodes and it started <laughs> playing really loudly <laughs> Are we live? No. <laughs> I mean, we can be if you want to be. <laughs> no. Open Periscope if you want to be live. That's not what this is. <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys want to know a super secret Zoom hack? Absolutely. Yeah. So We are recording everything you say. Great. Perfect. Can we release um, this? Can our listeners know? Yeah, absolutely. There is a feature that is basically a beautification plugin. Yes, Ooh. I've seen this. And it basically blurs your face... Oh, nice. To like a, a, a very unnoticeable extent, but enough to get rid of any blemishes or wrinkles. So it's basically like digital Botox. I mean, I've, do, I've been doing it for, for do it years. Let's do it. And uh, I think when entrepreneurs meet me first on Zoom and they meet me in person, there's a level of disappointment. <laughs> Touch up my appearance. Here it is. Where, where, where is it? Manage participants? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Ben, how do we look? Uh, touched up. <laughs> touched up. Uh, we... Um, well, this is great uh, radio. I can tell you that much. <laughs> so compelling. We were talking to an entrepreneur uh, who um, wants to start a men's makeup company. So oh, this yeah. is this is synergy here. Mm. Well, software may be eating his world. <laughs> Indeed. Well, oh, listeners, perfect. we are super, super lucky to have uh, the one, the only Jake Saper with us on the show today. Um, as you can tell, we decided just to, to launch right into it. But uh, I'm recording from Seattle. I'm looking at uh, uh, David and Jake's smiling faces from uh, the Wave Capital podcast room. It's good to see you guys. Nice Woo. to be here. <laughs> Great to have Jake here. Uh, so Jake, in addition to being my classmate from a long time ago back in business school, uh, and uh, we had many great experiences together there, which we won't go into on the show. Um, <laughs> Jake is a partner at Emergence Capital, which, in my opinion, is uh, the best SaaS investor, early stage SaaS investor in Silicon Valley. And we are super honored to have him on the show to talk about something that, um, you know, uh, Ben and I have have done occasionally do in our current VC lives, but are by no means experts on, which is SaaS investing. Um, so, uh, Jake, uh, when you joined Emergence? 2014. 2014, right? Yeah, almost five years. Wow. And you worked at Klein Perkins before that, uh, our cool. summer in business school. Yeah. Uh, before that, you did consulting and worked in energy, right? All true. All true, all true. And uh, Emergence, uh, you don't have to just take my word for it that they're really great. Uh, they were early investors in companies like Salesforce, Viva Systems, Success Factors, Box, Zoom, Gusto, and Yammer. Uh, they've had quite a number of successes and many more to come. Most importantly, though, Jake played a lead role in the uh, Silicon Valley sensation Soma the Musical. <laughs> so if we have time, we might get into that, too. <laughs> I'm glad Sorry, that I had the to. most important thing. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let's start with my first uh, question for you um which i sort of know the answer to but but our audience doesn't why how did you guys at emergence decide to only focus on SaaS? i mean uh it was not obvious when when the firm started and even you know on top of that too let's start from square zero what, what is SaaS and what is not SaaS? <laughs> sure 
Uh, well, that's actually, interestingly, a harder question these days uh, to answer. <laughs> so um, very technically speaking, SaaS obviously stands for software uh, as a service. Um, and it's the idea that you're delivering um, software uh, on a continuous basis versus on more of an upfront uh, license purchased basis. Um, this has been conflated with cloud uh, in the sense that uh, you, know, you can deploy. SaaS is most commonly deployed in the cloud. The reality is SaaS is a business model and cloud is a deployment uh, methodology. And so those two things are often conflated, but the reality is you can have a SaaS business model for an on-prem product. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have a cloud, uh, you can have cloud, I think you could have something in the cloud that wasn't, I mean, obviously you can have a lot of things in the cloud that aren't SaaS. Actually, are yeah. At, at at Microsoft, when we were doing Office for iPad, Mac, Windows, we were selling software as a service as desktop bits. Yeah. At, at first, when the world was transitioning to that, it always felt a little funny to me that uh, it's you know we were watching the rise of these web applications that charge month monthly with which made sense because the bits were shipped down every time you refresh the re- refresh the page. But you know it was kind of like wait a minute the 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 software on my computer can be turned off. Okay. And then the world had to like jump over that a little bit. To, right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think over time, people have come to uh, embrace SaaS as a business model. It, mm-hmm. It's really beneficial for, uh, for companies because they get a recurring revenue stream. So it's quite predictable. Investors like that. Um, and in fact, um, as an avid listener of the Acquired Podcast myself, uh, I'm familiar uh, with the trends that the podcast industry has made more towards uh, SaaS of late, including this uh, this very podcast. Very podcast, indeed. It's funny. So I remember um, when I first started at Madrona, which was 2010, which was probably right after Emergence got started. So Emergence actually got started in 2003. Oh, 2003. So I can tell, oh, I can wow. tell the founding story. Wow, wow. Okay, wow. That's uh, uh, it takes a long time to build, you know, many things, including indeed. venture firms. Uh, but even in 2010, I remember like people were didn't understand the business model of SaaS. People were very skeptical, especially public market investors and even VCs. Um, you know, and over the last uh, 10 years, we've evolved to a point now where it's pretty widely accepted that mm-hmm. SaaS is the superior business model mm-hmm. in the enterprise. And you're also seeing what's interesting is SaaS started in the enterprise, but you're starting to see the adoption into consumer, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously, Spotify is a SaaS model, mm-hmm. Apple Music is a SaaS model. And so it's kind of gratifying. It's about podcasting. It's gratifying as an enterprise investor where often, uh, you know, things start with consumer uh, and people, everyone knows it at consumer and then maybe it migrates <laughs> into, you know, enterprise, the consumerization of enterprise to see something start with the enterprise <laughs> and then move to consumer. So, so okay. So, so tell us the origin story. The of origin story. Okay, cool. This was not obvious in 2003. No. And um, the caveat I'll make before I tell the story is that I was not there. Um, so, so I had I had very little to do with the early success of the firm. Uh, it was our founding partners, uh, Gordon, Jason, and Brian, who who started the thing back in 2003. Um, Brian and Jason had been career venture capitalists um, and believed um, that there was an opportunity to build a, uh, a focused venture fund. Um, most venture funds at the time were generalist funds, um, and you know people had a lot of success with the generalist model. But as the industry you know, more matured and became a bit more commoditized. The thesis was, if you could actually build a firm that was Mm -hmm. focused on one thing, you'd have a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. And you'd have a competitive advantage for two important reasons. The first is that uh, you'd obviously have an ability to build content expertise and depth in something that other people may not have as much depth in. But the second, and this this is still a really core important part of the way we operate today, is if everyone in the firm is focused on one type of investing, Mm -hmm. you're uniquely able to collaborate. Mm. So venture is generally speaking a franchise model. 
Um, you know, everyone does venture differently, but a lot of venture investors act um, in a very franchise-esque way in the sense that you join a firm, you get to use their brands and mm. perhaps some other teammates and you get, you know, a certain amount of capital to allocate and then you go doing your investments and then you, you know, see how you perform. And, and that's not... And people have made a lot of money doing it that way. Mm -hmm. The reason why I believe the model has evolved in that way is because someone becomes the consumer expert or the healthcare expert or the SaaS expert or what have you. And so it doesn't make as much sense to collaborate. But if everyone's focused on one thing, you can. Having sat in, you know, uh, uh, many Monday meetings, you know, uh, Madrona has this model and and it's a great model. But, you know, there are uh, partners at at Madrona who almost exclusively focus on the enterprise. There are partners who almost exclusively focus on consumer and a company of one type comes in the other and, you know, at best, uh, you're just going to defer to the people who know what they're talking about. Exactly. At worst, you're going to say something that's like totally off the wall. <laughs> totally. So we actually, um, our whole model um, is is very different than other firms in the sense that we do diligence together on every single deal. So we bring a, a, we bring entrepreneurs in early in the process. So instead of you know, in, in most venture situations, if I meet an entrepreneur, I then I like them. I then do diligence on her for the next two weeks, and then I bring her in to pitch to the partnership on a Monday, and then we vote. Maybe you bring an associate or two in to help you, but like it's not nobody else in the firm. None of the other partners are exactly riding along with. And you. at the end of it, I am basically defending the investment mm-hmm. uh, to my team who has very few data points on the investment because they haven't been involved in diligence and they may not be experts on the topic. They may or may not have even read the investment memo that you yeah, sent them. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps they haven't. In our case, we we bring entrepreneurs in pretty early in the process. We have them do a full pitch to the partnership and then we all jointly decide, do we want to dive in and due diligence mm-hmm. as a full team? And if we do that, it's a bear hug. Mm-hmm. Everyone's involved. Everyone makes customer reference calls. Everyone makes management reference calls. Everyone goes and does a site visit and actually spends time with the company in person. And what's really cool about that model is when we go to make a decision, everyone's actually bringing primary data to the conversation, which mm-hmm. is to say like, hey, I had this conversation and you know I learned this and then we can make a, a decision jointly. And again, the reason we're able to do that is because we're, we've chosen to focus on, on one general topic. So that's a bit of a... yeah. Go ahead. How many people is that that, that then get involved and, and do such a bear hug? Yeah. So our investment committee right now, there are six partners, uh, six investing partners. And then we have uh, 14 people on the investment committee more broadly. And that is principals, senior associates, associates. And then we also have um, a set of uh, basically what we call our value add team, which are really seasoned SaaS executives. So uh, the guy who was the VP of sales enablement at Box and before that worked mm-hmm. at Salesforce uh, works for us now and works really close with our portfolio companies on sales ops. Um, the woman who was the CMO of Zenefits and the VP of marketing at Yammer also uh, is is a partner with us and, and basically spends a lot of her time consulting with our portfolio companies on marketing stuff. And so they're also part of the investment decision and kind of help help us inform our decision making process. Awesome. And I want to get back to the origin into, story. More into that yeah. later. Yeah. Okay. Back to the origin. Sorry. Story. Yes. That was a, <laughs> that was a long diatribe. So. Um, the two, the two founders that had been longtime VCs realized, hey, this we should try this focus thing and see if that works. And then the third guy, Gordon Ritter, uh, had been an entrepreneur a number of times. His most recent company that he had founded was called Software as a Service. That was actually the, that name, was of the, the name of the company. <laughs> and he co-founded <laughs> well, do it. Do you guys... Did he transfer the trademark to Emergence? Uh, unfortunately, he didn't. We own no trademarks. Um, although we have one that we're actually working on now, which I can talk about in a second. But um, he started that company with a gentleman uh, named Mark Benioff. Ah. Um, so listeners might have heard of uh, uh, Mr. Benioff, Mr. Benioff, and his tower. Yeah. Um, so, so Mark Benioff is uh, is the uh, founder and, and current co CEO of Salesforce. Um, and uh, basically, what happened with that company, SaaS, that they had founded, Software as a Service, it basically got rolled into uh, Salesforce ah, and was okay. the initial platform that that became known as the Force.com. Um, 
And so, so the, the, the three of these folks took a step back and said, hey, I think this whole you know, cloud thing is going to be more than just one company. I think it mm. might be a whole movement uh, from you know, on-prem to the cloud. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start our, our focus venture firm with that thesis? And so that was around distribution, not around business model to start. Correct. So the, the idea at the time was this concept of, of multi-tenancy. Mm-hmm. And that, yep. that concept was a super powerful concept. So yep. instead of you know, single tenancy, which is basically the way single tenancy on-prem, which was yep. the way that most things work, this was... Install software on a computer. Exactly. And then the next computer. Exactly. So the, the very famous initial logo for Salesforce was that no software. The no software. Logo. Yeah. Brilliant. It was uh, such an amazing stake to put in the ground. Yeah. Like I think, uh, David, you and I were having this conversation around you don't ever achieve sort of fervent fans without taking a stake on something and taking a stance and going out on a limb and Salesforce raising their hand and saying no software in the era of, you know, software is eating the world or a little bit before that. But I, I think like that yeah. everyone was woken up All to this the idea is, that like software is the interesting, you know, movement this right is, now. Uh, they're saying reminding, opposite. Yeah. This is making me realize too, you know, we have a whole list of um, uh, content calendar of, you know, acquired episodes we're going to do. Salesforce is not on the list. Oh man. Oh man. We got to put it on there. Wow. We, we need to tell this whole story. Yes. But anyway, okay. So, Back to so so, the thesis. There's a distribution, a technical thesis, uh, but people haven't realized the power of the business model yet. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, people start to realize the power of the business model once Salesforce goes public. Yep, and starts to see the power of recurring revenue mm-hmm. and the ability to forecast really clearly and and all those things. And I think that started to create a bit of an ecosystem. And so what happened from there? One of the benefits of of being uh, early investors in Salesforce is that we got to. Um, see that ecosystem evolve really closely. And so a number of our early investments were actually built around the Salesforce ecosystem. Uh, so built on top of that force.com platform that mm. was originally a software and as a service. Viva is one of Viva, those. Viva is one of those. Um, so, so Viva um, is uh, started basically as a focused version of Salesforce. So it was Salesforce just for the pharmaceutical industry. So the pharma industry has um, specific regulatory requirements where you have to mm. make sure your sales reps are you know, abiding by certain policies and what have you. And uh, instead of trying to customize a horizontal piece of software like Salesforce, the idea was, can you build something really focused mm-hmm. uh, on, on the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. uh, sales rep sector? And on top of Force.com. And, and leverage the Force.com so you don't have to build your own mm-hmm. infrastructure. And uh, that turned out to be uh, you know, one of the best businesses, I believe, in history. So we just for, for context, we I'm, I'm mostly very biased, but the numbers actually support it. So we we invested $6 million in the company um, back, uh, I believe it was 2008 or 2009. And uh, that was actually the only capital the company ever raised. Uh, the company went public in 2013 at a $3.5 billion valuation. And the company Incredible. is currently trading at a $17 billion valuation. Incredible. On $6 million of capital. And so there's benefits. And I, and I know one of the things we were going to talk about, I'm happy to talk about now or later, was the benefit of, of thinking about horizontal SaaS companies versus mm-hmm. vertical SaaS companies. This is obviously, you know, we believe Viva is kind of the definitive example of a vertical SaaS company. Yep. And, and there are definitely trade-offs uh, when you're going that route. But we view vertical SaaS. So if, if the original kind of if SaaS 1.0 was horizontal SaaS, mm-hmm. then Salesforce obviously is, is the definitive company there. Although, you know, companies like the one we're using right now, Zoom, I would also consider to be a horizontal horizontal SaaS product. So For sure. that's definitely not a dead sector. There's a lot of yep. interesting stuff Slack, happening there. What have you. Yeah, exactly. Um, SaaS, SaaS 2.0 is vertical SaaS mm-hmm. in, our, in our minds and, and Viva uh, typifies that. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2 Quarter. 
Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about that I think you guys are, are you know, also, I'm not just saying this because you're here in the room. I really believe like you are one of the best venture firms, I think, because of this uh, focus and history about being thesis driven. So you guys have a few, a handful of theses about how you view what SaaS and the enterprise is going to play out over the next, you know, X number of years. How do you think of it? How did how did that culture evolve within emergence? Um, and, and what are your current theses and how did they how did they kind of evolve and get developed within the firm yeah so i mean it started with the founding right so the the idea that we we had a thesis to start and that allowed us to have some early success kind of it reinforces things and it's like oh well this is working so let's keep doing it um so so the culture was kind of started from the beginning from a process perspective we have uh, what we call a priority theme process and the idea is at any given point the firm can have no more than three priority themes as an as a whole firm and so um, and, and priority themes are, are themes where we dedicate full form res- firm resources to pursuing them, to writing about them, to learning about them and researching, to obviously investing behind them. But but be- behind that, we also have these kind of uh, bubbling up themes, mm. right? Where each of us has a hunch about mm-hmm. something. We don't have enough data to say we want to kind of put the full force of the firm behind it, but we all have some some hunches and we're kind of constantly experimenting. And what happens is we have quarterly offsites and everyone kind of presents... Uh, periodically on whatever kind of theme is bubbling up in their mind. And they start experimenting. They may make an investment in it and see how that goes, learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, if they have enough confidence and they can kind of get the the machine behind them, we may try to elevate it to a priority theme. Now, what but would happen then a, is you got you to you de-elevate. You de-elevate one of them. 
Wow. The, the, cool. we, we, we intentionally try to put constraints to keep us focused. Mm-hmm. Well, it, oh. Are you willing to share what they are right now? Or sure. is that... Yeah, yeah. No, it's no, for sure. Happy to. Um, so our current three priority themes. Um, so the first is, is uh, we still are huge believers in this concept of, of vertical SaaS or what we call industry cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, we think there's still a lot, a lot of room to run there. There's still a lot of industries that haven't seen the benefit of that yet. Uh, one, I know you, when you first joined, you spent a lot of time on the design or like construction tech, right? Yeah, construction tech certainly very popular. Um, and one of the first investments that I, I was involved with was a company called Drone Deploy. Uh, which is drone software focused on farmers and construction workers primarily. Mm-hmm. It allows them to fly drones autonomously, map their fields or their sites, and then make decisions. Um, and um, yeah, so that was that was you know there. And there's obviously been a bunch of exits in construction recently, and that that's actually you know proven to be a pretty attractive uh, sector. And there's a bunch of other ones. So that's kind of you know current you know the one priority theme. Uh, the second priority theme that we're we're pursuing right now is something we call uh, the deskless workforce. Mm-hmm. And uh, this makes a lot of intuitive sense, but the concept is um, the uh, 80% of the world's workforce doesn't actually sit at a desk, and 95% of the world's software has been built for people who sit at desks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a there's a mismatch. It doesn't take you know a genius to find that out. Um, so the argument would be that you know once people start to build software that's actually being actively used by that 80%. The, the size of the addressable software market that could be created could actually dwarf what we currently have, which is really mm-hmm. humbling to think about. Yeah, There's lots of questions around how that could happen, where it will happen, all those types of things. But we're pretty actively involved in, in making investments in that. Um, and we just had our, our first and what we believe to be the, the, the first billion dollar outcome in uh, deskless worker, uh, deskless workforce theme. We, we um, had invested in a company called ServiceMax that was also built right. on theforce.com. It was acquired by GE uh, now a year and a half ago for about a billion dollars, um, and that was a kind of uh, uh, a what we call a field service uh, mm-hmm. software company. Um, but we're we're super actively excited about this deskless workforce idea, and that will also encompass a bunch of new modalities. That will encompass yep. you know augmented uh, glasses. It'll you know watches. Microsoft had the big Hololens two launch. Yeah. And uh, note that it was enterprise focused. Exactly, well, and, and I actually and fits I think perfectly you, in this theme. You must be a business to buy one. It's kind of funny yeah. they have no consumer channel. There's no ability other than then through procurement to actually go get one of the HoloLens too. And in fact, it reminds me a lot of Apple sort of doubling down with the later edition of the Apple watches on fitness as, as the sort of the primary use case rather than it does all these things and it's a right. platform that you can figure out whatever it is. They're like, no, 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 we know what it is now. It's enterprise, it's training. We're not even putting up a website for it that you can buy it. This is back to the focus concept. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, like we have three core values as a firm. You'll notice things are in threes. Part of that is because <laughs> I, I was a consultant. I really like uh, three bullet points. Three founding <laughs> three partners. Everything's in threes. You know, everything's in threes. threes. Um, yeah. but, but our first core value as a firm is that we all focus to drive conviction. This concept is, you know, we all jointly mm-hmm. focus mm-hmm. to drive conviction in founders, in themes, in markets, uh, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like the idea of, you know, basically what you described, Ben, with HoloLens is they decided we're not going to try to be everything to everyone. We're going to try to focus. We know what we're going to do mm-hmm. and we're going to do it really well. And that's part of the ethos of our firm as well. Cool. Okay. So that's that's second core theme number two. Core theme number three um, is, uh, is a theme that we have uh, completely made up. So the title will be one that is probably new to many of you, uh, but I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, and the theme is something we call coaching networks. And the idea is that um, in, in many, much of the uh, software that has been built uh, using machine learning today in the enterprise has been focused on automating away low-level tasks. Mm-hmm. And there's value in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of what we call static tasks that are repetitive, often human-to-machine, that, uh, that will 
need to, that will likely be automated away. This is like a yeah, UI path. UI path automation anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of companies that are doing really well doing that. Yep. Um, and we think that's a, that's a great market. But what we think is actually an even better market and a longer term, more defensible uh, software play is using that same machine learning technology to augment workers or coach them as they perform their tasks in real time. Mm-hmm. So the idea would be, um, as, as you and I are having this conversation, as, as the three of us are having this conversation, you can imagine a coaching network that could pop up and say, hey, Jake, you've been talking too long. <laughs> Let Ben interject here. Ben's got something great to say. Would learn whether or not I did or didn't do it. Yeah. That's the I already talked over him, uh, <laughs> which is what there's obviously no coaching network involved here. You know, learn whether or not I yeah. did it or not. And then importantly, would 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 uh, correlate my behaviors to some sort of business outcome. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. did the did the um, product get sold? Did the you know, did the uh, interviewee want to work for us? Whatever that that thing is. And then be able to make those correlations happen across everyone in the network that's actually performing that task mm-hmm. and then be able to make recommendations based upon every, everyone's behavior. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of these of this this idea um, is not only that it's a much more you know positive way to view the world and kind of automating <laughs> everything away. Um, and we also think there's a lot of retraining possibilities here because you actually can start doing a task without a lot of training because mm-hmm. this actually acts as a bit of a digital digital apprentice. But the, but from a business model perspective, what makes me so excited about this is that finally the enterprise has the ability to capture network effects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about the consumer giants, Google, Facebook, etc. You know, Salesforce has performed really well, but it's still not anywhere close to the size of the consumer giants. Yeah, it's not a network. It's it's a platform for sure. Right, and it's got you know all the lock in that comes from all the best applications are are you know they call it the operating system of of the business where all the best applications are sort of available through uh, Salesforce in the same way they used to be available through Windows. Uh, so there's sort of lock in, but you're right. It's not a network effect in the same way that, you know, every single business that comes on would be directly better for every other business who is ex- an existing customer, the same way that a Facebook would be. Exactly. And so our belief is that coaching networks, perhaps for the first time, will create an opportunity to actually have true network effects in the enterprise. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Ben's familiar with this company, but one of our companies that's in Seattle that, that is squarely in the coaching network's space is called Textio. Yeah, I was going to bring it up. Yeah. yeah. And Textio does something called augmented writing. And basically, the concept is anytime you write something in business, you generally have a purpose. You're trying to achieve something. Mm-hmm. And the words you're using are generally going to be correlated with whether or not you achieve your purpose. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really intuitive concept. So the idea is, can you... Uh, get enough data on what was written and what the outcomes were to be able to make recommendations to people as they're writing Mm -hmm. on how to write to be more likely to achieve whatever goal that is. Um, And in the spirit of focus, their first focus was on job posts. Yep. Turns out the the job posts you write are highly predictive of who will apply to your job. Um, And so what they did was they created, and and there's a story around how they created this proprietary data set, which is super cool, but they they started uh, and and got a bunch of, of data on kind of how job posts have performed. And they're now at a place where um, they have, uh, you know, I think it's tens of thousands of daily users. And the idea is every time a new person is contributing a job post uh, to the system uh, that's coached by Textio, Textio is learning how that performs. And that learning actually benefits not just everyone in that company, but literally everyone that is a Textio user across all of their companies. And so we've created this really powerful network effect. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. So there's two two things this brings up for me. One is, did you guys ever look at a company? This is old school called Compendium. Yes, um, I I didn't look at it as an investor, but I'm familiar with it. 
So Compendium had this idea, it was founded by one of the exact target co-founders. It was this idea that as you are writing a blog post, uh, it could uh, sort of know what your business outcomes are, understand um, the SEO necessary to achieve those business outcomes and tell you if what you were writing was actually helping you to achieve stuff. And it could tell you, you need to throw in more of these words. You need to do, you know, this paragraph is irrelevant for what you're trying to do. But super, super early in uh, um, in this world, machine learning wasn't a, a, you know, wasn't widely available yet. And I don't think uh, the technology was there yet, but it, it's almost like the, to answer the question, why now for this thesis of coaching networks is the technology has sort of caught up with the um, sort of future looking notion of what if, you know, what if any little bit of work that somebody did could be well understood by the broader community and then leveraged in their work as well. That's exactly right. So the, the two reasons for why now on this, the first is the technology exists now. Mm-hmm. Um, processing power, uh, you know, is, is cheap enough. Storage power is cheap enough. Uh, you know, things are now in the cloud. So there's kind of a tech, there's a tech, you know, reason as to why now. Um, but the second reason is that there are now the, the there are enough sensors to be able to make this work because mm. you need sensors on two ends. You need the sensors for the human behavior, mm-hmm. and then you need the sensor on what was the business outcome, mm-hmm. right? So one of the actual really important sensors that's being deployed today to to make this possible is the product we're using right now with Zoom, mm-hmm. right? So so many sales reps are now having conversations on Zoom, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And you're able to track your tonality of voice, how your movements look, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then you can correlate that with the mm-hmm. system of record, the the you know, Salesforce or whatever else you have to be able to figure out what those correlations are. And so the and and those sensors aren't just obviously exist in, you know, in video form now. We have all sorts of sensors that we're wearing on our body and mm-hmm. other places. And that is allowing us to gather the human behavior data, yeah. which we can then correlate with outcomes. Super cool. It's an interesting the second thing I've been thinking about and that this like reinforces that point even more is that if let's imagine machine learning doesn't exist and uh, Jake, you're an enterprise and you have a bunch of customers and I come to, to you and say, um, hey, I'd like all your customers and I'm going to sell them something now. You'd say like, no. Or maybe you'd say like, well, let's enter into like a channel partner agreement because like you're taking, you're disintermediating me in some capacity by doing that. But with this world of, uh, I like how you coined it, coaching networks, there's so much value to be brought by a network effect on the back end in the way that the software works that if I'm to come to you and say, hey, I want some of your customers, uh, you're going to get so much value by just using my software and distributing it that you're like, oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll totally use that. Like, I, I don't look at this as disintermediation. I look at it as tr- bringing tremendous value to me and I don't have to, it's not like the sort of Textio brand is the main primary brand that's now mm-hmm. interacting with your customers. It's more like uh, uh, there's so much value that happens on the back end by getting larger and larger as a company that, uh, that it, it, encourages people to distribute for you yes and there's and this is a term from business school that david will appreciate there's a concept of fomo that exists here right? oh so that's f- a business school term okay yeah i don't know i, I, at least I, you learned, I learned a lot about in business i paid a lot of money to learn that term um, so uh, but the concept of fear of missing out it's it's incredible because um if you are um a large fortune 500 today who's trying to you know compete in the talent market and you're not using textio and most of your competitors are Mm. then you're not and they're all they're all getting the benefit of each other's knowledge and you're just playing on your own little island Mm -hmm. and so there's this concept of like well 
I mean, I'm missing out relative to what yeah. my competitors are doing. And that that creates this really positive flywheel effect. And it, it, it's beneficial. Like it, it is a true network effect in the, in the sense that every new user makes it the product better, better. for everyone else. So, okay. So uh, this is a perfect seg into my next question for you, which I, I am also like super genuinely curious about. The other ones you weren't genuinely curious about. No, no, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> fill, in, uh, fill in air time. <laughs> uh, no, but... Um, Textio is the perfect example here. I remember meeting with um, meeting with Textio uh, when I was at Madrona, uh, and um, amazing team, great idea, and 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 you guys had this thesis which which helped you um, look at the lens of the opportunity. When you were looking at an individual company, how do you evaluate the market for a SaaS company? And Textio is the perfect example because we also thought the team was great. We also thought this vision of the future was awesome, but we couldn't get there on the market for job listings. And and we were probably wrong, right? But like, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a it's a great question and one that we that we wrestle with, you know, ourselves obviously all the time. Um, so it starts with the way we think we, the way we think about all of our diligence efforts is it starts with what is the customer value being created? Mm-hmm. So even if that customer value that's being created is being created for the first time, mm-hmm. right? Because there, there aren't, there's not a comp, there's not an existing market for Textio. So mm-hmm. you have to, you have to, you can't, you know, download a Gartner report and see what that looks like. <laughs> right. And, and the reality is the best opportunities, there's not going to be a Gartner right. report. Exactly. Uh, particularly for early stage investing. So, so you have to understand what is the customer value that's being created. So you talk to customers and say, Hey, you know, what was life like before you use this product? What is life mm-hmm. like now? You can understand what that value being created is. Mm-hmm. And the company may or may not be uh, capturing enough of that value from a pricing perspective. And mm-hmm. that's a separate, separate conversation. Mm-hmm. But if there's enough value being created, you can, you can see a path towards, uh, you know, capturing some of that value. And if there's enough value being created uh, and you believe there's enough people like that for whom that value could be created, then you can see a path towards a market being created. Mm-hmm. That being said... Um, you still may have to make a second leap, mm-hmm. which is to believe that um, great on- great entrepreneurs will find new markets. Yep, yep. And Viva is actually a great example. So when we first invested in that in the CRM for pharmaceutical space, it was a counterintuitive bet because you know the most generous market sizing there was 500 million. Which is not a big enough market size. I mean, obviously, the company is now a seventeen billion dollar public company, so, right, so they did they something, did something right? different. Yeah. Um, but when you but but part of the reason why that was a you know a, a non obvious bet is because people said this is too small of a market. Yep, you know, best yep, case yep, scenario, this yep. gets acquired, yep. which is not what we're going for. No offense to the title of the podcast. <laughs> um, now, well, now we've expanded IPOs. We, so. and, and and the the best you know the best companies we cover on acquired are the ones that are it's not even just the ipos it's like the enduring you know big huge platform companies like exactly. that's what we're all it's trying really to build. a misnamed podcast at this yeah <laughs> but I, I have a lot of affection towards the name i don't know why <laughs> i think sure your name too. starts oh. with an a yeah you know, exactly like, it just great. works well um but so you, you you have to you have to believe that, that people like kieran and jensen the founders of textio are going to create uh, a new market another example in this is um we're investors in a company called guru which is another coaching networks company focused uh, really on distributing knowledge to customer-facing teams. So it's knowledge management, but really with a focus on customer-facing teams. And when we made that investment, it was also controversial from a market perspective because if you look at knowledge management, that is a market that does exist. Mm-hmm. And it's not a very good one. Mm-hmm. So if you look back, at there, there has not been a, a massive... There's been a lot of companies who have built knowledge management systems. And Talk most more about that. What's, what's a knowledge management system? So... Um, Class. I'll tell what I'll talk about what it is classically and, and how Guru is doing it differently. So classically, knowledge management has been uh, a wiki uh, mm-hmm. or an intranet, right? So SharePoint, it's a, a SharePoint, exactly. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Confluence is another example. Yeah. Um, you know, 
basically it's a it's a it's a third party place um, where you store all of your organizational knowledge, mm-hmm. and that has classically looked like things like HR policies and IT policies and all that type of stuff. Occasionally, you'll get you know data that's relevant to a sales process on the product or you know support or what have you. Um, and that's that's basically that was a state of play uh, when Guru came to pass. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, those products um, have not built great companies. And, and I not, believe uh, not super inspiring product. It's not a super inspiring product. Um, in and I think part of the reason that is is because the products aren't used very much, mm-hmm. right? Like if you create, think about in your own organization, there may there probably is a wiki or, or an intranet, and you probably don't go to it very much, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's this it's this other place. I'd much uh, rather. It, it's funny that we even were developing one for for Pioneer Square Labs. Uh, I could refer to it. I often just email people and ask them uh, exactly the, the very same question. I could look up exactly. And at Guru, we call it the shoulder tap. Like, how do we avoid <laughs> the shoulder tap? Um, uh, and the idea is, um, there's two reasons why you're tapping on a shoulder. Uh, the first is because you don't want to go to you know you don't want to get you don't want to break out of your workflow and go somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. And the second is because the knowledge that is in this third-party place is probably old, right? There's probably something newer because people don't use it, so they don't update it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as a result, no one's built an exciting company in knowledge management to date. So if you look at the market and you say, "Should we make an investment here?" The Crappy answer is market. the answer is no. Yep. So what we saw in in Guru and what what Rick and Mitch at Guru have built is something that um, tries to solve those two fundamental problems: knowledge management. So the core concept behind Guru is that the knowledge you need should live where you work. Mm-hmm. And so they basically just capitalized on a new UI. So instead of mm-hmm. building Guru as a third-party knowledge management website like mm-hmm. everyone else, they built it as um, basically having two core UIs. The first was a Chrome browser extension. Mm. So this Chrome extension just sits alongside you and uh, basically is a little co-pilot or coach <laughs> that understands what you are doing and uh, can proactively pop up the knowledge you need while you're in an interaction. So if you're you know, a support rep who's going back and forth with a customer in Zendesk, it is, uh, it's always there. It's just kind of sitting mm-hmm. alongside you, understands the conversation you're having back and forth, and will proactively pop a piece of knowledge and say, hey, uh, you know, here's I, the playbook. Here's the, yeah, here's yeah. the piece of knowledge, what we call card, that is probably useful in this situation. And then it learns, does the support rep use that knowledge, modify that knowledge, or ignore that knowledge? Oh, that's cool. Is there a little like, at the end of it, yes, no, like, was this helpful? Like- you don't even... So there is, but but here's the beauty of machine learning, David. You don't actually need that because you can learn, you can correlate, did they use the knowledge? Mm-hmm. And then what happened with the ticket? Mm, right. Did the ticket right, right. close? How quickly did it close? What was right. the customer NPS, etc.? Right. So you don't cool. even even need the the, to the, to to the sensor piece of this thesis. Like you, you know, was it a success? Did it work? Come on the ticket. Did it yeah. work? Yeah. And the next cool. time a support rep anywhere across the world faces that same problem or a similar problem, Guru will know which card to elevate based mm-hmm. upon your yeah. own behavior. Cool. So this concept of being in line. Uh, the other UI they have is a Slack, uh, a Slack interface. Basically, I was going to ask. Always that there. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so when you're in Slack, it'll pop up automatically and and give you the knowledge you need. Um, it's a, it's a that's a long way of saying uh, that was another non-obvious market bet, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that we had to get comfortable. But it, it all came down to customer value and having the conversations mm-hmm. with the customers, as well as being thesis driven. We had this coaching networks thesis. Mm-hmm. We believed mm-hmm. we were actually hunting for a company like Guru proactively. Mm, cool. Which is which was like super they're in Philadelphia, right? They're in Philly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jake, you guys are s- typically Series A and B investors, and so you sort of see uh, evidence of product market fit in at least one vertical as you're sort of thinking about, can I imagine this thing scaling? You don't have to make a complete fresh bet on 
uh, you know, a pre-product market fit company with this notion. That's right. Um, so yeah, our sweet spot is 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 product market fit, um, okay. which which generally happens around the A. Uh, sometimes it happens around the B. But what we like to do is get involved when we feel when we can talk to some customers and see, okay, there's some value being created here. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily know how you're going to scale it yet, but we've got this whole engine of go-to-market SaaS expertise that we're going to just bear hug you with, uh, mm, to use right. that term uh, again. Uh, but it really feels that way, I think. Like you, you join to our team and then we sit down with you and do uh, a super deep dive on all your various go-to-market strategies. We bring a bunch of potential hires to you for VPs of sales or VPs of marketing or SDRs or what have you. We try to help you figure out channel partnerships and pricing strategy, all the stuff that basically every SaaS company deals with at the Series A and Series B. We've, right. we've architected our team to be sort of laser focused on helping with those problems. It's, it's interesting and helpful for founders to probably use a similar framework that you use in market sizing when, you know, you're, you're a talented person with only a, a limited number of years on this earth where you can, you know, have a, a be working and, and you have to decide what I'm going to spend my time on and what I'm going to start or what I'm going to go join. And it's interesting to think about sort of opportunity sizing. I won't say market sizing, but um, from a bottoms up perspective instead of a top down where mm-hmm. it's almost like TAM is backward looking whereas value provided on a unit basis and then tr- I'm trying to es- extrapolate that to how many units could there eventually be is really forward looking. That's such a good way to put it. Uh, TAM is a very backward looking metric. Mm-hmm. We, we really don't like top down market sizing. Um, we think it, it guides you in the wrong direction. I mean, the mm-hmm. two companies we talked about today, if we had done top down, we wouldn't have made the investments. Hmm. At, the, at, the, you know, at the very least, it's a, it's a sort of derivative form of thinking, right? Yeah. Like, um, it's the Gartner thinking. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about theses, we've talked about markets. Let's talk now about building SaaS companies. So I want to start with uh, let's let's start at the beginning. Where are good breeding grounds for SaaS entrepreneurs? With the caveat that just in, in any form of entrepreneurs eventually, like great companies and great founders come from anywhere. Yeah, but there are pockets too. Yeah. You know, well, so um, from a SaaS training ground perspective, Salesforce is still a really great place. There are some incredible people that go through that boot camp and come out and just know how to execute. Mm-hmm. There have also been some great entrepreneurs that have come out of Salesforce. Although I wouldn't say um, we're at a place yet where there's uh, sort of a thriving large ecosystem where Salesforce is just minting new entrepreneurs. They're, they're, they're minting great VPs of sales and great VPs of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's some great entrepreneurs as well. But um, I wouldn't say that there's... a I don't think there's yet been a PayPal mafia of SaaS. Do you think there will be? Or no? is it like, uh, maybe, okay, to, to put a finer point on this, we, t- we think about this at Wave a lot. When you guys are looking at uh, founding teams, and, and you look at product market fit when you invest, but like, you know, the team's still super important. And, you know, you, you look at companies early, you meet them. Are you more concerned with domain expertise in the uh, experience and expertise in the domain of, say, it's a vertical SaaS company? Or... SaaS company building like uh, nuts and bolts execution DNA. Obviously, you want both, but like, what do you think is more important? Yeah. Um, so the best companies obviously have that pairing. Um, yeah. So in in Viva's case, um, uh, Peter Gassner, who's the CEO there, um, was a deep expert in CRM and the Force.com and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Matt Wallach, who was the president, was like a pharma person through and through. Mm-hmm. And so for vertical SaaS companies, our belief is that you do have to have both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we and there's a third, you know, we call the talent trifecta for vertical SaaS companies or industry cloud companies. And the third, obviously, is someone who can help build a tech, you know, mm-hmm. as a CTO. Yep. And so 
we believe that you know basically all vertical SaaS companies will need that. If I had to choose between um, you know the domain expert uh, and the uh, you know the kind of great SaaS leader, um, I think you know if you have a great domain expert who has all the great makings of an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you know someone mm-hmm. who's hungry and you know charismatic, charismatic, and, and, yeah. and can yeah can enroll, and that that actually is an important point. Like the the single most important thing that um, I look for in evaluating a CEO for potential investment is uh, what I call enrollment. Mm. So what is their ability to enroll uh, or, or, uh, or, or basically create followership? And, and there's three important things they have to, to create followership three. around, You guys obviously. are all about the threes. Uh, I know. I, love it. I know. I'm obsessed with the threes. Um, I really it's like too bad much. there's already a Trinity Ventures out I know. there. But Unfortunately, anyway. they took our name. Yeah. Um, but uh, so first thing that you want to look for from an enrollment perspective is, um, you know, can they, uh, can they attract customers? You know, obviously, that's, a, that's an obvious one. Because for the first, you know, foresee- the, the early foreseeable future for a SaaS company, founder selling is, is, is most important. The second is, can they invest? Can they uh, attract investment capital? Right, because mm-hmm. even after you uh, yeah, make right. the investment, you want to believe that you can get, can't raise their next. You round. can't they raise, have next to round. raise their exactly. next. Exactly. Um, although interestingly, I think this depends a little bit on the market and whether or not you think they'll have to raise a lot of money. Hmm. Um, and the third one um, is uh, is people, and that's the most important one. Like, mm-hmm. do you fundamentally believe that yeah. the, this founder will be able to attract incredible people? Because I can bring them great people from our network. Mm-hmm. Yep, but they have to. Con- convince they have to close them i can lead the horse to water yeah but ultimately right. the, the you know the the water has to close the horse i'm not sure how that analogy the water has there, to be tasty enough to, exactly to, to be to be consumed to a discerning horse exactly Jake, yeah. i think this is this is so on point and to give sort of the the founder perspective i think and just founder psychology on it when i was um uh starting taunt and and wearing the ceo hat there uh, and, and spinning out a PSL, Mike Algon, who's my, my co-founder there, uh, uh, has, you know, he sold a quantum to Microsoft. He's had a bunch of sort of successful exits over the years. And uh, uh, his way of phrasing that to me was your job as the CEO is to marshal resources that you don't yet deserve. Your company is nothing right now. Like you don't, I mean, deserve is kind of a funny way to phrase it, but like, why should that incredible person come and work for your company that is nothing? Why should that investor put money to your company that's nothing? Why should that customer sign on with you? And your job is like to go and push each one of those things just one inch further than you sort of deserve at that moment and then leverage the fact that you pushed it one inch further on one vector to go and attract the next. And it's sort of this like, this uh, almost game you're playing of going round and round and round and trying to push everything forward in sequence with the rest of it as fast as you can. Yes, that's that's such a good way to describe it. Um, and it leads me... So there's there's a North Star metric I use to make investment decisions uh, that mm-hmm. relates directly to this, this concept. Um, and that metric um, is very admittedly a subjective one, but it is, would I work for this person? That's such a good... Uh, uh, who... Um uh somebody uh, i remember reading years ago i think it was maybe Bijan at spark also uses this and uh it's just such a good reductive like and, and the thing i found to make it i mean it's it's great because um i mean a i am working for the entrepreneur yeah and like you know i'd spend a, a lot of time on be, like, serving that entrepreneur for a decade so as the vc so i am but especially in your guys case it really is true like, we we do we you know our second core value is that we strive to be the most important partner to our founders and we take that really seriously. So each of us only makes one investment a year. And the idea is you make that one investment, 
and you go super deep. And are you guys dogmatic about it? You make an investment. You 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 cannot make another investment that there's year? not there's not a um, hard and fast rule. Like there are some years where people will make two investments, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly no more than two. And the average is about one point two. You know, so it averages makes out sense, to be sense. about one. Um, but so we take it really, really seriously. I serve the founders I've talked about on this podcast already, uh, I, and you know, it'd be interesting to hear their perspective. But I view I view myself as very much in service to them, and I spend a lot of my time serving them. Yeah. Um, but 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 even more important than that, I I need to bring I need to ensure that really top tier talent will work for them. And I don't know if I'm top tier talent. <laughs> But I have, I have, you know, I think emergence is top tier. I, ha- I have an idea of what that could look like, and actually, I, I am fortunate to live with someone who is top tier talent. That's um, That's so great. my wife um, is a SaaS executive herself, and she is my secret weapon in so many ways, uh, <laughs> perhaps not so secret. But, um, but I, um, I, I really like her to spend time with founders before we invest, uh, for two reasons. One is. Um, this whole thing is just a family thing like this. Like, I mean, th- th- what we do is so personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. can't, totally. there's no line between professional and personal for me in this job. And so it's really important that my wife knows my founders, my founders know my wife. And, uh, and in some cases, uh, there's actually like some interesting business uh, collaborations that have happened between those relationships. And I want to get to know their spouses as well. Um, but also, this is also just a total aside. Uh, a point that i didn't realize till you know starting wave and you probably didn't realize till becoming a partner at emergence like it's family and that like the vast majority of my family's you know current and potential future net worth is tied up in our investment decisions like you know uh, yeah yeah and so that you know that's another reason why i think danny my wife likes to meet the entrepreneurs before we before we fund them Um, (laughs) investment committee totally she's she's my investment i mean the other thing um is if if this entrepreneur can attract danny to want to work for him or her then for me, that's gold. Mm-hmm. Just because I mean, I obviously hold her in such high regard. Um, but but you know, if 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 they can do that, then that tells me that there is something here. Which again, it's a you know, it's a strange <laughs> way to think about investing. But it's no, it's too. It's a uh, my wife Jenny. You know, she's she tells me you know, hey, always be sourcing, and like she's always sourcing for us totally. too. Like <laughs> totally. Uh, okay, so so we're talking about domain expertise. For obviously, you want both, but uh, it sounds like is what you're saying. I mean, it could be either the domain expert or the SaaS, you know, not, it, but you it need be that, either. I would say that, it's, uh, it's easier to enrollment. attract. Yeah, you need the enrollment thing. It's on balance. I think it's slightly easier to complement a great domain founder who knows the problem that people are dealing with, yep. with great, you know, a COO from, you know, Salesforce or Box or something yep, that yep, has yep. seen it before yep. than it is to do the opposite. Because um, you really want the founder to have extreme customer empathy with the problem. Mm-hmm. And if the person's mm-hmm. just, you know, a SaaS expert and they're not an expert in the problem the customer faces it's harder to build that yep that makes that makes total sense um okay so that's that that's team uh, now let's talk about like i'm a great I, I think i'm a great team you know building a SaaS product uh i really want a great partner like emergence you're not gonna even consider investing in me until i have product market fit what do i do between my team is pulled together ready to go and when i'm ready to come see you how do i build the <laughs> And I would say even uh, even with getting investment not being the goal, more around like how should I in my early pre-product market fit stage, you know, how should I put yeah. together a great SaaS business? And I think the funny thing is a lot of entrepreneurs have a great idea for something in their heads now because SaaS is so standard. They're like, well, of course, the business model would be sort of like a monthly recurring subscription type thing. But I think a lot of people when they're first at the outset don't even realize, oh my God, I'm running a SaaS company. And so once you sort of have that realization 
what's the like set of things that you should start looking at? And there's a million blog posts about SaaS metrics, but what are the things that you really think as a SaaS investor are important to create a successful SaaS business and find product market fit? Yeah. So the metrics, um, I can talk all day about the metrics, but the... We'll get to the metrics in a minute, but yeah. But but when I think about um, the the single most important piece of advice I would give to someone who has founded a company and, you know, is at the seed stages and is pre-product market fit, uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record on this, but focus. The only thing you have is focus. Mm-hmm. Relative to all the big companies out there, even medium-sized mm-hmm. companies out there who are doing a bunch of other things and have to support legacy businesses, all you have is an ability to focus. Mm-hmm. And so I would much rather see a company um, really laser focused on solving a fairly narrow problem. And Textio is a perfect example. Textio is obviously a great example. And then execute on that super well. And then I'll believe that they'll be able to expand from there. Um, far too many companies come in. You need, it's, it's fine to have the broad change the world pitch. You need that. You, and you also need to believe it. But you got to start with a focus. You can't start with this kind of what my partner Gordon calls peanut butter approach, <laughs> uh, where you're kind of trying to do everything for everyone. Yep. And this is even more important in machine learning land. Mm. A lot of the companies I'm backing these days have some ML at their core. And what I think um, I've seen a lot of is kind of generic ML for the enterprise. And uh, that's bad, not only from a go-to-market perspective, the same reasons why that's bad in SaaS 1.0 land, mm-hmm. but it's bad from a product perspective. Because for a machine learning company, your recommendations are only as good as your data is relevant. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if the recommendations you're trying to give are for a bunch of different problems and the data set you have isn't relevant to those problems, the recommendations aren't going to be great. Take Guru and Zendesk, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Zendesk is probably a, a pretty good use case for them, right? Because you have clear outcomes, you have a process you can insert yourself into. Like, yeah, I, I assume they didn't start doing everything as a knowledge base uh, from day one. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you think about how we've built the product, Guru is being used in all sorts of ways. People use it for HR policies and IT policies and what have you. But when we think about that, when we're building what we call AI Suggest, which is this mm-hmm. proactive suggestion engine that is driven by machine learning, um, we originally said, we're just going to focus on support. Mm-hmm. We're just going to really go super deep on support and make sure that our data sets and support are super relevant just to support for a specific type of customer um, in a specific stage so that we can turn on the machine and it just works beautifully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're moving to sales and we're going to have an AI sales engine now. But y- the idea is we started with something, we got really good at it, and we're not moving to the next thing until we are sure that we're awesome at the first thing. Makes sense. Um, okay, so now let's get to you've done that, you've focused, you've built a product, it's got, you know, usage, you think it's great. Now I come see Jake. Um, Obviously, all the things we talked about earlier are probably f- foremost in your mind about evaluating, you know, through the lens of your thesis, evaluating the team, you know, doing the market, you know, thinking from a bottoms up perspective about the market. Uh, but there also are metrics and, and metrics are um, the way uh, most investors, I would assume you as well, judge product market fit. Mm-hmm. What There are a million blog posts out there about yeah. SaaS metrics. Yeah. Is the orthodoxy right? Or like, what are the most important ones to you? Yeah. Um, well, let me start with the non-metric one uh, that I think is is the harder one to judge and therefore isn't talked about as much. Mm-hmm. Um, product market fit is not a function of metrics. Mm. Product market fit is a function of customer love. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? It's a function Which, of... As my partner, Riley, so we were talking about this the other day, like at Airbnb, they Brian, uh, the CEO, wanted 
uh, he, he for many many years he would go to he would go to riley riley was the head of data science and be like i need a metric to show love give me a metric for love and Riley's like i can't give you a metric for love it is literally impossible for me to give you a metric for love that's like a broader <laughs> life point yeah as well. <laughs> and riley believes it too like, how do he, i know when that's exactly, yeah, exactly like his point when we were arguing about this he was like yeah love is the most important thing but like you cannot John Lennon may have, yeah, may have yeah all, it's all you need it's all you need <laughs> okay great continue so but but yes i mean so i will tell you the way we look at metrics and i'll talk about the ones that are important in a second um but the single most important uh way that we build conviction and investment is in talking to customers mm-hmm. and hearing from the voice of the customer hey this is what my life was like before mm-hmm. this is what my life is like today mm-hmm. um i was talking to uh i was doing a customer reference a couple weeks ago spoke to the customer and this is a bit twisted but the customer um who was a buyer for the product um sent his when it came time to renew the product sent his team who were the users of the product an email saying hey i'm sorry but we're not gonna be able to renew the product this year uh just to kind of screw with them <laughs> and the response that he got from his team was a bunch of like expletives and capital letters <laughs> that's and great. from a vc's perspective that's, that's what you want to see you just want yeah. that's what you want to hear <laughs> right um, when i was our, our summer in business school i worked for meritech which is a growth stage investor does uh, everything but but uh, historically has done a lot of enterprise and SaaS companies and i will never forget uh rob ward who's an amazing fantastic investor there you know, he told me about uh, one of the biggest lessons i took away is like was when we were doing customer calls and he was like you know i'm always looking for the tableau 10 he was like when i did customer calls for tableau literally like they were like everybody i talked to was trying to jump through the phone and like come and beat me over the head with a hammer like you do not understand how much this has impacted me and he's like that's what i'm always looking for and it's it's really hard to find uh but but yes that is the gold standard Mm -hmm. um so first and foremost before the metrics that you want to hear that um mm-hmm. from a metrics perspective um there are kind of three you know common metrics that people care about in SaaS. um and i won't spend a ton of time out because you're right david you can we've written a bunch on our website and as of everyone else um mm-hmm. so the first one is just arr growth rate do uh, you have a favorite we can recommend of a, a good rundown of SaaS metrics um yeah my partner joe floyd wrote a piece on how to raise a series a in SaaS uh, that's on our website and i think there's some good cool. metrics in there and what those benchmarks should look like um but um the, the first one that's really obvious is is what is your growth rate and the core um the core kind of way in which um revenue levels are judged in SaaS is what's called um annual recurring revenue or monthly recurring revenue arr mrr mrr is just you know arr or arr is just mrr times 12. um so that is kind of what is your current run rate you know if you add up all the value and you annualize the value of your current contracts what is that total to so it's sort of like a forward-looking gap revenue metric mm-hmm. but it's the standard metric in SaaS today Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding what is the growth rate of that number. So how quickly are you adding new customers and how does that look relative to how customers are leaving you? Um, and generally speaking, um, when you come to a series A, you want to be that number, you want to be above 10% month over month. So you want to be growing your ARR number mm-hmm. at least 10% month over month. Um, so that equates to uh, bad at exponential math in my head, but you're probably like tripling or quadrupling yeah, tri- every year. Yeah, tripling or so. Yeah, because you're human. Yeah, um, right, right. <laughs> despite your Samson-like hair, you're just human, David. <laughs> uh, um, the secret is out. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the crime that this is just an audio podcast is you can't see how incredibly lustrous. That's why we're doing doing more live shows. Yeah, and that's <laughs> good for your audience. Um, you're, you're too kind. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the, the classic you know phrase in in uh, in in SaaS is is uh, triple triple double double. So the idea would be you triple hmm. you know year one, you triple year two, then you double three and four. 
Okay. Um, and that's kind of the path for, uh, you know, the classic path for success in ARR growth. So that's, that's metric number one. Um, metric number two, uh, which is related but important to call out separately, um, would be um, what we call net retention. And so this is uh, basically a function of um, how quickly and by how much volume your customers are leaving you mm-hmm. versus how quickly and by how much volume your customers are upselling. Expanding. Yeah. Expanding, exactly. Um, so you, you basically, uh, no surprise here, but you, you definitely want, uh, you want your upsells to cancel out your churn. Right. So ideally, you want better. Are you looking for better? Like yeah. In so, every case? so what we, yeah, it's you know negative churn, negative negative net churn. Exactly is a way to think about it. Um, so you you want that. So what that means is that um, if you if you had no sales team to tomorrow, that yeah, your your yeah your 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 cohort would would expand uh, naturally. Yep. Um, There's and, actually a big. Uh, this is a a shared point with uh, marketplaces. Uh, that is a a thing you know well we invest before there's a product but like uh that you know airbnb learned that we learned at rover like you know at a certain point and if it's a successful marketplace you're just like man if we all stop coming to work tomorrow like this thing keeps this flying. thing keeps growing yeah. <laughs> like and that's what totally. <laughs> that's great yeah and you know obviously that's not very few of our SaaS companies will do that but the but the basic concept is it's also it's this is a bit of a proxy for customer love i mean all this mm-hmm. is a bit of a proxy mm-hmm. for customer love mm-hmm. um but that's that's really really important. So one of the ways we, we visualize that is through what's called a cohort analysis, and I think that exists on Joe's Joe's blog, the one I recommended. Uh, but if it doesn't, I can send something in the show notes. Um, but it's basically a way to visualize uh, cohort by cohort. So you know, for all the customers that joined in this month, you kind of visualize how does that graph expand or contract over time, and you want to see what we call a smile. Mm. You want to see that your the <laughs> the later cohorts are are getting bigger, and so there's this kind of like crooked mm-hmm. smile that happens with that graph. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's net retention. Um, let's see. So the third the third metric that um, I spend uh, a lot of my time and we spend a lot of our time thinking about is sales and marketing efficiency. Mm. Okay. Um, so how how efficiently are you selling your product? Because mm-hmm. um, you can have but that's a, probably the most fixable, right? Well, it is and it's not. So mm. if if there is a fundamental um, there's a fundamental imbalance in uh let me put it this way um if you have to push so hard to sell your product there's no market pull at all Mm. um it's hard to scale in a reasonably capital efficient way yeah right it's just like if 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 it if you've got something that's great but it takes you three years to convince every customer that they should buy it um then uh you're gonna have to raise so much money to get to a size that it's not good for anybody. Got it. Yeah, you you got it. with all the stuff that we'll talk about uh, next that you focus on after you invest that you can help optimize and help the team. Like you can't do two orders of magnitude improvement on this metric. You can fix the operational inefficiencies, yeah, but you can't fix uh, market pull. Yeah, and in some mm-hmm. ways, sales and marketing efficiency is a proxy for market pull. Mm-hmm. How do we measure? How do you measure sales yeah. and marketing efficiency? Is that the cost of, cost to acquire a customer? Is that yeah? It's a, it's a really simple metric, and I'm I'm generally a fan of trying to simplify these things as much as humanly possible. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the way we look at it is simply um, what were um, your new uh, and sometimes we consider uh, new and upsell bookings over the course of a given quarter. So how much you know new annualized revenue did you add over the course of that quarter um, divided by the spend you uh, had on sales and marketing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and basically, and it's really simple. It's really you want that ratio to be more than one. But you want it, uh, don't you want it to be <laughs> the previous quarter spend on sales and marketing over the question? Yeah, I mean, so now you're getting the specifics. Weeds, but... It depends on the length of the sales cycle. Uh, so if okay. the sales cycle is more than a quarter, then it's more accurate to do the previous quarter. Yep, yep, yep. Um, 
But generally speaking, to standardize things, and for most SaaS companies, most SaaS companies have. Um, you know, mid-market and SMB SaaS companies generally have a 90-day or less sales cycle. And so you can so do it in the same quarter. Same quarter. Um, Makes sense. But generally speaking, you want that sales and marketing efficiency number to be above one. Because mm. really simply, you just want to be able to say, okay, for every dollar I throw into this machine, I get okay. more than a dollar back. <laughs> right. So that's that's the third. But if you're going really fast, it's going to be below one. And Correct. It, it's, that and could mask. It does. And the other thing that's hard about it is when you add a bunch of new sales reps, when you're growing really quickly, let's say you do a big fundraise, you hire a bunch mm-hmm. of sales reps to go faster. Mm-hmm. That sales and marketing efficiency number by definition is going to tank. Yeah. Yeah. Because you got a bunch of people who are ramping up and don't know what mm-hmm. they're doing. Same, same in marketplaces too, honestly. like We don't have quite the same metric, but... Uh, you know, at Rover for many years, people, investors would look at Rover and they'd be like, this is terrible, right? Because they were judging on something similar to this. And it's like, no, the opportunity is so big. We're investing so much in growth. That- the, way, the way to look at it um, is you can you can actually, and this is one of the nice things about SaaS, is you can actually um, individualize it on a per rep basis. Mm. And you can see, okay, because if you look at all the new reps that are coming on board, yeah, you don't, you know, you can't, they're still ramping, so you can't, right, you can't right, do the math. Right. But if I've got a rep who's fully ramped and I know that, you know, it's, yeah, I can, I can understand how efficient they are with mm-hmm. their, their selling basically. Mm-hmm. And one, one metric I do like to look at, um, is the ratio of, uh, kind of a, attained quota, basically, you know, how much new bookings they're getting over the course of a year divided by their OTE or their mm-hmm. on-track earnings. Mm-hmm. Cause that tells you, okay, you know, this is how much they're adding based upon how much they're costing the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, I want to see that number above four. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, if my if my fully, you know, mm-hmm. loaded sales rep costs me 250K a year, I want them to be adding a million dollars annually. AR makes sense. Can I, can I just say for a minute, popping up a level, it's insane that like all of the people who run these businesses are dramatically different. The products that they make are dramatically different. The, the segments they serve, the value they bring, all these things very wildly. And yet when you boil them all down and fit them in the same sort of, here's how you measure each of them, like good ones all sort of look the same. And, and I'm sure there's some like normal distribution of uh, what, it, what, you know, that you, you're looking for things and sort of like, uh, two sigma or two and a half sigma away from the mean uh, in the sort of northerly direction. And there are the sales forces that are like three or four sigma away from the mean or something like that. But like, it's nuts to me that this can all be standardized. Well, I think that we um, we give some false precision to this because it mm-hmm. gives us some comfort to <laughs> yeah. just to be clear. <laughs> yep. Like the reality is, you know, there are outlier businesses. So Viva, for example, their sales and marketing efficiency numbers were absolutely insane because they sold seven figure contracts. And they had these referral effects where like, you know, if Pfizer is using you, then Bristol Myers Squibbs is going to use mm-hmm. you. It doesn't really cost you that much to do it. Wow. And so yeah. part of the reason why they didn't spend any money is because they had these insane sales and marketing efficiency numbers and still do if you look at their their public reports. So as a result, you know, like it it's really hard to benchmark that. And so yeah, right. our business is a business of outliers. The outliers drive most of the returns and the outliers are hard to benchmark. So yep. I just want to caveat by saying all this is a little bit false precision. It's, it is important and we use it, but this is why I go back to customer love mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. some of these metrics may, be, may give you false indicators. Yep. Um, and there's a last metric I want to add, which is the one that I think is least talked about in SaaS, but I think is arguably I'm coming to believe is amongst the most important. Um, and it's actually a consumer metric. Um, wow. I know. You heard crazy, it here right? first. You heard it here first, folks. Um, <laughs> the, the, the metric that I spent a lot of my time focused on uh, in diligence and, and as a board member um, is utilization mm. or usage. Yeah. It always, you know, as someone who's mostly leaned consumer over my career as an investor, when I would work with enterprise companies at Madrona, this is the thing I was always like, 
there's something missing here. Like, yeah, you're selling to the CIO or whoever, but like, if people don't use this thing, eh, you're it's pushing a, a boulder up, up a hill, yeah. writing on the wall. Yeah, yeah. and so and so that yeah, there's there's two reasons why I think usage is important. One is uh, I guess I could find a third to make it three, but um, in my head it's only two at the moment. <laughs> um, so the, the the first reason obviously is it's a leading indicator for churn, right? Mm-hmm. So if people aren't using your product very much, doesn't matter. Eventually, it's going to catch up to you, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, the second reason why it's important, and this is more specific to machine learning driven companies, is um, utilization actually. Uh, creates a data flywheel that makes the product better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if let's just take Textio or Guru for example, if um, if in the case of Guru, every time they popped up uh, a recommended piece of knowledge, no one used it, mm-hmm, it was just mm-hmm. ignored. Um, then not only do, are people not getting value out of the product, mm-hmm. but more, almost perhaps more importantly, the the system isn't learning any new data. The system mm-hmm. isn't seeing okay, the you know the, the they tried this knowledge and it worked or it didn't work, and therefore mm-hmm. I can improve over time. It's just a static machine learning data set. Mm-hmm. The data set in, itself is not expanding, mm-hmm. and so usage is important both as a leading indicator of churn, but also really critically as a way to make the product better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also I got your third right here, which is. Um it's a proxy for value. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's customer. Yeah. I mean, customer. It's back yeah. to customer love. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I look at things like like very consumer metrics, like Dow Mal ratios. Mm-hmm. So daily active user to over monthly active user, which mm-hmm. just tells you of the percentage of folks who are using your product with any frequency. Yeah. How, how many of them are using it really day. frequently? Yep. Yep. Totally. Um, okay. So now we got metrics. Uh, let's talk about um, after you guys invest what's like uh, some of the topics I want to cover pricing um, distribution uh, and and um, operational and executive like help. let's so let's uh, let's start with distribution that's probably well at least in, uh, distribution in the consumer world is uh, the hardest thing that nobody talks about I imagine it's similar in in your world but but let's talk about it yeah well can, can I level up just one more thing before we dive into that yeah so um Right after we invest, there's there's a there's a, a stage before we talk about distribution and pricing and other types of more tactical things. There's a, an alignment phase. Mm, cool. And so the first thing we do after we make an investment in a company is we bring the executive team into our office, um, and we do this with not just the deal sponsor but other partners around the table again because we're trying to to kind of act as a team here. Um, we bring everyone together and we do a vision and values exercise with the executive team, mm. and that starts with the IPO press release. Mm, and so Amazon have, of you. Yeah. So we have each of the founders or sorry, each of the executives independently write their own IPO press release. And we ensure that we, we ask them not to share it with each other ahead of time. And then we all sit around a table and each of them reads their IPO press release. And we start to realize, okay, there's some really fundamental different, fundamentally different assumptions that people are baking in to mm-hmm. how this company will grow. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone says, you know, everyone's going to say we're going to be at, you know, 200 million ARR in five years and we're going to be, you know, ringing the bell and whatever. Uh, but someone may say, you know, we're going to be at 200 million ARR and we're going to have 200 awesome customers. And then someone may say, we're going to be at 2 million ARR. We're going to have 20,000 awesome customers. Mm-hmm. Or three different verticals. Or three different verticals mm-hmm. or geographies mm-hmm. or what have you. And, and the reality is, you know, a lot of that stuff will get sorted out down the line, but it, you can start to tease out, you know, fundamental misalignments up front and just start having that conversation. Then we do kind of a, we do a back solving exercise, which is like, okay, if this is the goal, what are all the things that need to happen to get here? 
And then we do uh, an analysis of what are the potential barriers that could prevent us from getting there. And then we do an analysis of what are the crazy accelerants that could just change everything. Mm -hmm. Like if we hired this type of person or if this regulation changed or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end of that, we have this really cool document and conversation that Mm -hmm. we had, which is like, okay, this is is a rough game plan. It's not like we're Mm -hmm. committing to a board plan right now, but it gets everyone, the board and and everyone else aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So we start there. Oh yeah, do you bring other previous board members in in that experience, or is it really just you guys and the executive team? No, it 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 is varied, but in the past two that I've done, we've actually brought in the the existing board members as well, and it's kind of a full team exercise. Mm-hmm. the The key thing is to make sure that everyone feels comfortable um, sharing, and that mm-hmm. it, there doesn't feel like any pressure. You know, if someone is you know a more junior member of the executive team, you still want that person to be contributing as much because mm-hmm. their their voice is just as important, and so. Um, it, it's about kind of creating a, that that safe place. And so we kind of set a, um, this is again, back to grad school. We try to set like D school norms. Uh, mm-hmm. When we start the event, mm-hmm. we have lots of, you know, post-it notes and other things to make the, make it feel a little less weighty. Um, yeah. But so that's where we start. We start, we start there. And then that's also a good place for us to understand. And we also understand this through diligence. Okay. What are the key challenges the company's facing? Mm-hmm. And for us, it generally does start with distribution or what we call go to market. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so generally speaking, there, you know, there, there's a bunch of different go-to-market models that now exist in SaaS. There's the mm-hmm. Viva, you know, million-dollar contract, total enterprise sale, you know, model. The uh, you, your very active sales reps, humans who are selling to other humans. Correct, humans selling to other humans that, that you employ. You, that you employ, employ to, yeah. that take that take a long time, uh, potentially a long time, and but are really high value, mm-hmm. super complex really complex buyer situation with lots of people informing that buying decision, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of on one end. And on the other end, you've got freemium. You've got mm-hmm. the, you know, the Yammer, the Zoom, the Slack, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and you know, we've seen, and then there's everything in between. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's hybrid models and what have you. Um, what's interesting um, and is that um, even the, the freemium companies, so even um, Slack and Zoom, for example, and I'm clo- my wife works at Slack and, and obviously we're investors in Zoom. So I've seen, I've seen the story fairly close. You know, both of those companies started uh, with a, a really strong freemium model. Mm-hmm. You know, just people... Mm-hmm. And, they, and bo- they both obviously still have a really strong freemium model. Mm-hmm. But what, would, what both of those companies I think have seen over time is that you kind of have to layer on people, uh, people and, yeah. and a sales model to actually build a business into, into you know, a predictable business um Stuart butterfield uh i think famously i don't know if he denies this now but i think somewhat famously you know has a quote that he's uh, never going to hire sales reps it's so you know of all these companies like all these ceos they always say that and and it always changes well and the, i mean the irony is that my wife runs mid-market smb sales at Slack, and so <laughs> so i'm like well i mean she exists yeah yeah there for a while now yeah. so um but but i think you just start to realize that um you need a, you know kind of proper process in place and so mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we're evaluating uh, a company or once we've made the investment, we, we generally try to align with the founder on, okay, what is the model that exists today and how do we think that model should evolve over time? Um, and so that we kind of work on that. We kind of work mm-hmm. towards, towards uh, whatever the kind of agreed playbook looks like. Um, a lot of what... There, then there's some process stuff that we do. So um, my colleague, Doug Landis, who I mentioned was, uh, was a VP of sales ops and enablement at Box and before at Salesforce, will actually go in and help people rewrite their initial sales pitch mm. um, and help them redefine what we call their ICP or ideal customer profile mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and figure out kind of what the sales cadence should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Vivega, who's the, the CMO woman I mentioned before, uh, will do similar things on kind of the top of funnel marketing pipe and you know 
different ways to do demand gen strategies and product marketing stuff, et cetera. So we kind of get we get fairly tactical. Um, but the other way in which we end up spending a lot of our time with our companies in distribution is actually just hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that is so so important. Like mm-hmm. the, the I think you know one of the the most important things that we believe we can do to meaningfully affect the outcome of a company is to bring in help them bring in incredible people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than um, introducing them to customers. We, we introduce folks to customers. I think that's valuable. But what I think is much, much, much more valuable is teaching serve, man to fish. Yeah, right. Don't, don't serve them. The, you serve the fish, but you also, you know, bring in some great fishing poles. And that that is just, I think that's an undersung thing. A lot of founders when, you know, I, we, I always ask, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, common response is love customer intros. I'm like, mm-hmm. happy to do customer intros. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a band-aid, mm-hmm. right? What you really need is someone who can be doing the customer intros for you in-house. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. thing is where venture capitalists sit structurally in the ecosystem, you sort of get to thin slice and meet so many talented people for no reason at all because it makes sense for them to know you and it makes sense for you to know them that you end up with this really robust uh, uh, network of sort of talented executives and maybe future founders or maybe past founders that uh, sort of nobody else really has access to because it doesn't make sense on a repeatable basis over all these years for them to know all those people. Yeah. I mean, we, we've invested in almost 100 enterprise software companies over the course of the past decade and a half. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen every model and we, mm-hmm. have, we have worked with many of the best people and many people who aren't as great, but we're able to know a who is great and who is not. Mm-hmm, and we're also mm-hmm. able to understand who is great for what situation. So one of the things we actually just did a whole exercise on this yesterday, we, we spent a lot of time doing what we call body building, uh, which is a phrase that I, I did not know what that meant when like I joined five years ago, like it's time for bodybuilding. And I was like, what is this? Um, but basically we also, <laughs> one of these many, uh, it's like when uh, people are referred to as an athlete, you're like, yeah, right. exactly. exactly. I, sort, I sort of get it. It's a little weirdly macho male skewed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We perhaps should change that title, but, um, but it's, it's, I, I, I trust me, it's the least athletic thing you can imagine. We sit around a table, <laughs> um, and, um, we describe the, uh, type of profile that we are looking to fill within a company mm-hmm. and we get really specific. So it's not just like I'm looking for a VP of marketing. It's I'm looking for a VP of marketing who majors in product marketing and has some experience with performance marketing, mm-hmm. but is really majoring in, in product marketing and has done this from, you know, 10 to 30 million ARR. Mm-hmm. And the good news about our focus is that we then can just open up LinkedIn and we also have a, a, a CRM system we use to track people as well and say, okay, here's the that's 15 people. Yeah. Um, and then we, we start the intro process. Um, so that's so from a distribution perspective, like I think bringing on mm. great talent is the most it's important the most, thing we can do. Let's jump to pricing. The first version of pricing is usually like, you know, I don't know, let's try this, right? Yeah. And then, you know. And it's some, always too low. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not right let's put it that way um and we you know it's funny like for us uh we encourage our companies to think about a lot but we also tell them not to overthink it you know at the like you know when you're just building the product like Mm -hmm. getting like price it too low Mm -hmm. get people to use it right but then at your stage you know when you're product market fit like pricing becomes really important super important uh and we we spend a lot of time with our companies helping Mm -hmm. them think through pricing models um so um, I agree with you that most companies are pricing too low. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think initially for many companies, it's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. There are some companies for whom it is not okay to do that. Mm. And specifically, these are industry cloud companies. So so, so vertical companies that um, have a really uh, well-connected buyer set, mm-hmm. it's really dangerous to price too low upfront. 
Hmm. Because if you give the first buyer a discount and the first uh, buyer is best friends with the buyer at the other one, because this is the uh, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb and Pfizer uh, scenario yeah, with Viva, right. and that, right. this, this actually literally happened. So right. the, the one of the first customers Whoa. was was going to be Pfizer. Pfizer came to Viva and said, "Hey, we love your product. We'd love to buy. Give us the Pfizer discount. We're right. your second customer." Right. And Peter said, "No." Peter CEO said, "No, it's a million dollars." Right. And that right. and he went back and forth until eventually. Pfizer walked, which was a really stressful thing when you're a young company and you got yeah. a million dollar contract. Pfizer left. Yep. And then um, six months later, Bristol Myers Squibb comes along and says, "Hey, you know, I've got this, you know, million dollar. Uh, yeah, I've got this. I've got this product. You know, I want to buy your product, etc." And eventually, um, Bristol Myers bought it for the full price. Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, Pfizer comes right. three months back later. Right. Pfizer buys it. But price. if they'd sold to Pfizer for, oh, okay, we'll do it for exactly. two hundred thousand. Exactly. Like that changes the whole trajectory of the company. Exactly. So, so yeah. pricing is a really um, nuanced thing in in, mm-hmm. in industry cloud companies. We we believe that it's really important to hold the line up front. Um, mm-hmm. For other companies, you can do more A/B testing, and we encourage that. Um, it's it's important to A/B test to figure out what the value will look like, particularly for given customer segments, because different mm-hmm. customers will pay different things. Um, one um, one mistake that we see um, customer uh, companies doing is uh, is making pricing um, basically single axis, meaning only having one dimension along which people price. So mm. here's the you know here's the product that's like here's the per, this is the per seat model. It's it's either per seat. So there's general. So our recommendation, generally speaking, is that you want a two axis pricing model. Okay. Either volume based pricing, which is most commonly per seat. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, sorry volume-based pricing and typically feature-based pricing is the other dimension. So, you know, the gold, uh, platinum, diamond products mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it with different levels of features. Um, and having that two-dimensional matrix makes um, cross-company comparison harder. And so it allows mm. you to experiment a little bit more with pricing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to align yourself with the value that you're creating. Mm-hmm. So the volume-based pricing, you know, if the company is growing and doing well, you want to be able to capture some of that value. Mm-hmm. Um, two quick other thoughts on pricing. The first is you got to figure out your level of pricing, not just with A-B testing, but also with an ROI analysis. So you mm-hmm. do have to go to your customer and work with them to figure out how much value am I actually creating. And then you can back solve and figure out. Um, and generally speaking, folks can charge or should be charging anywhere between 10 and 25% of the value they're creating. So you got to figure out what yep. that is. You don't want your pricing model to be based upon the ROI because then you get into this really weird situation where you have to prove ROI every mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. But it's a way to set levels and mm-hmm. then back into it with that two-axis pricing. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'll say about pricing um, is that this per-seat pricing model, I believe, will die in the mm-hmm. age of coaching networks. And the reason I think mm-hmm. that's the case is because you're you in coaching networks, you want to incentivize as much usage as possible because the usage of the product makes the product better. Per seat pricing disincentivizes mm-hmm. utilization. Mm-hmm. So you still need a volume-based yeah. access. I think about... But the volume uh, shouldn't be per seat. Any yeah, of the sort of information-based stuff like like uh, PitchBook or Crunchbase or whatever, like you're yeah, you're incentivized to have one <laughs> seat and, and not share it. There's ways to do volume-based pricing that are not per seat based. Um, so in the case of Textio, for example, they charge on how many people you plan to hire that year, mm. regardless of how many people you use Textio for, because they want you to use Textio for everyone. Yep. But yep, you're aligned yep. with the growth of the company. Yep. Makes sense. Well, Jake, there's a lot more that I know we could uh, we could pick your brain on, but I think we will uh, we will let you go about the rest of your day here in a minute. Thank you so much for, for coming and joining us. And I think uh, uh, one thing I'd love to, to offer for, for listeners is, you know, how can they get in touch with you? I, I, if they feel, you know, hey, uh, um, you know, I'm right about that right time where I should get to know uh, great SaaS investors, um, where can they, they reach out? Yeah, um, I guess I will give my email out. Uh, and when you, when you talk about it, do you do like, I guess, so my email is jsaper at mcap.com. 
And I don't like I, I just I'm thinking about on Twitter where you like, you know, do the at separately so people can't click and spam you. But I guess it's it's verbal, so it's, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'd say I'd say email me. Um, or I mean, obviously, the, the best way is to go through someone that I'm connected with. Mm-hmm. I, I respond to every email. I believe that that is my job to do. So I will respond to you if you email me. My odds of meeting with you are going to be higher if it comes through a trusted source. Yeah. And I, I'd say also maybe, I guess my original intent in that too is like, where can they find you on Twitter? You know, where, where, uh, the interwebs. where can they yeah, follow yeah. your thinking? Yeah. Um, so I um, have been writing a lot on this coaching networks concept uh, and it's on, um, it's both on LinkedIn, but also on, um, on the emergence website, which is mcap.com. Um, and I'll be writing a e- bunch e- more. E-M-E-M-C-A-P.com. Yeah, I will be writing and me and my partner Gordon are both writing a bunch on kind of the how to of how this next generation of companies will be built. Um, so lo- would love to talk to folks that are actually building the stuff. Great. Very cool. Well, well thank you, Jake. Really. Thank you, sir. It. This has been awesome. This was fun. Super fun. We're gonna have to have you back to, I, you know, one thing, obviously emergence and, and I know you are super thoughtful too about is, um, you know, building venture firms and yeah, I have a lot you guys are big into the Kaufman program and, uh, Definitely want to talk about all Let's that. Let's do so another we'll, episode. We'll do another episode. Yeah, I I love this place. Um, I just want like I just want to say one last thing about my love for this this podcast, um, <laughs> which I like. I'm an avid. I'm I'm you know I guess I'm a I'm a long time listener, first time uh, <laughs> first time caster, guest, guest, <laughs> uh, etc. But I'm just so proud of what you guys have built. Aww. And and the, and the thing I want to say about it is the evident joy that you guys have when creating this this beautiful thing you've created comes through in the audio so clearly like sitting here i can see both of your smiles but the cool thing about what you're doing is that the smiles are actually audible through what you're building oh. and it makes the listener smile as well so thank you oh well thanks jake very high compliment thank you sir um listeners if you feel the way that jake does you should feel <laughs> scream it from the hilltops uh we we just got a, a robust discussion of network effects and uh please do feel yeah. free to share that you're an lp or you like the show or anything like that. And thank you so much for, for being limited partners. We'll talk to you next time. We will.